Someone categorized this parable once as one of the unpreachable parables. And after listening to it just now, you may agree. It's a really hard story, and I've been working with it for a few weeks now. I've read all sorts of books. I've talked to a lot of different people, including bringing it up in Bible study last week. I've tried to think about, about an alternative, less obvious, more gentle interpretation, but none of them really seem to hold up or, or have um, the teeth in them to help us get into some hard questions. And so as we read the story, then I think that there are a couple things that we need to address before we can even look at what this parable may have to say to us. The first thing that we need to ask is, what does our reaction to the story tell us about our view of God? What does our reaction to the story tell us about our view of God? And secondly, what does this story teach us about how to read the Bible? So once we get past those two questions, then I think we can ask a third question, which is, what does this story invite us to now? What does this story invite us to now? So question one basically is, is God really like this? Is God really like this king that, that destroys cities, that would throw someone out of a party just for wearing the wrong clothes? I don't want God to be the king in this story. In fact, people who have been talking to me about it will tell you, I kept thinking, I kept saying, I don't think God has to be the king in this story because the king is capricious and violent and abusive and vindictive. And I don't think that's what God is like. That's not the God I see in Jesus. I, I don't think that's the God we believe in as Christians that when we look at Jesus, we see a God of compassion and forgiveness and welcome. We don't see a God like this King. But I do think that in the sense that this is a teaching story and a metaphor, a parable, something that's meant to, to stir us up a little bit, I think God is meant to be the King in this, in this story. And, and there are advantages to God being the king in this story that we'll look at later. But I also want to say that if you are tripped up by the idea of God being the king in this story, it's okay. It's okay to not be able to get past that. Some of us have been told for so long that God is just waiting to find something wrong with us, that we are working our find that we are working on finding our way back to a God of love. And I don't think we should let this story get in the way of that. And there's others of us who have had narcissistic, even abusive authority figures in our, in our lives who have wounded us. And it's okay to just say, for now, the story is too triggering for me. I move on and focus on the larger picture, the overall picture that we get of God in scripture and in the gospels and in the life of Jesus which is this very welcoming, compassionate, and kind God. And at the same moment, I want to say that if you are triggered by thinking of God in this way, it may be an opportunity to examine what you assume to be true about God, even on a subconscious level. Do we really think that God is 
is waiting to judge or reject or to throw us out. Many of us do. In which case, I hope you'll consider this as an invitation just to go on a journey, to to understand and transform how you think about God in your life, to move into that space where where God is a compassionate, safe presence rather than a dangerous, judgmental presence. And to that end, I just recommend finding a really good spiritual director who can guide you into this. Or reading a book like Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, or Abba. So this brings us to the second question. Question two, what does this story teach us about how to read the Bible? What does the story teach us about how to read the Bible? Now, in Circles of Trust, a a process that I love, I'm leading a couple of groups, um, Circles of Trust, this fall for the church. Um, We have a, a set of touchstones that we read at the beginning of nearly every group, a set of guidelines that we agree to abide by while we are together. And one of them says this, when the going gets rough, turn to wonder. When the going gets rough, turn to wonder. And when we get to a difficult passage like this one, I think it's an invitation to turn to wonder and to to begin to, and when we turn to wonder, to remember what the Bible is. The Bible is a conversation between people and communities over a period of about thousand years, largely an attempt to understand who is God and how does God interact with the world. And they do that through the story of the Jewish people. So what community is this passage written for? What what is the conversation happening in this passage that might help us understand it? Well, Matthew, most scholars would agree, is written for a small Jewish community in Antioch after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 CE. It's a community that is feeling marginalized and traumatized after the fall of Jerusalem and a community that is in an uphill battle to create an alternative community, alternative community of practice of Judaism in the way of Jesus. And they're, they're one of many different um, sects, Jewish sects that are trying to vie for, for a more correct, a better um, way of interpreting Judaism. And, and so the community of Matthew is feeling this, um, this tension, feeling very marginalized, feeling like they're, they're kind of in a battle to, to talk about why their way is the right way. And the story, this story of Jesus that Jesus likely told in some form comes down through those early Jesus writings to them. We don't know exactly how Jesus himself told it originally, but we are given two different versions in the Gospels. Matthew offers this darker version from their community's perspective, and Luke offers one with a happier ending, where those who don't come to the banquet don't meet a bitter, violent end, and there is no underdressed guest who gets thrown out. The stories are enough alike in Matthew and Luke to make us think that they probably have the same original source, but you can see how both of 
Matthew and Luke are taking different meanings from those stories in their context. So turning to wonder in this story, the way it's told in Matthew, we see that the invitation, the invitation to come to the wedding feast was really a matter of life and death. And this text is a reflection of the fact of the matter that for Matthew's community, faith was something that was of a life and death choice. The temple had been destroyed. Their lives were in danger, danger and their community was fragile. Saying yes to living in the kingdom could cost you your life. And from where that community is st stood, the hyperbole, the, the extra drama in the story was, was completely appropriate and felt very real and is understandable. And, and maybe also we who have lived relatively easy lives, we underestimate the gravity of, of God's invitation to the feast. And so maybe this story has something to teach us about how to read the Bible. Reading the Bible isn't about blind assent, nor is it about superficial dismissal. The Bible invites us into a sacred conversation marked by wonder about who is writing and why. It invites us to consider what God is saying to us out of that ancient conversation. And it's that wondering, that conversation that makes the Bible sacred. So now we're ready for the third question. The third question being, what does this, in story, what does this story invite us to now? What does this story invite us to now? In some of our small groups this coming week, we'll be looking at a story that Carl Jung told, one of my favorite pieces of writing, where he told a more gentle story about a well that had sprung up with magic water, water that could heal, water that brought wholeness. And when it was discovered, people began to, to make a profit off of this well. They began to put fences up around it. They charged, charged admission. They made laws about who was allowed in. And so eventually the water stopped flowing there and it began to flow in another place, at another spring. And the same thing happened there. People codified it and commercialized it. And so it went somewhere else. The water refused to, to be hemmed in. The water refused all of those laws and to be so restricted. And it kept opening up in new places where it could truly do what it was meant to do. Do you think that Matthew could be getting at this same meaning in this story? He keeps making these, telling these stories throughout um, the writing of the gospel, talking about how seeds are thrown everywhere. And it is only those places that are fertile that, that see the produce of those seeds. Tells the story about the sheep and the goats, about the people who seem to get 
what the kingdom is about and the people who seem to not. Some of you get it and some of you don't. Matthew says over and over. And so the spring keeps arising in places where it's received on the fertile soil with the sheep who know what to do with it, with those who, who, who welcome the stranger, who care for the prisoner, who feed the hungry. Everyone is invited. The seeds go everywhere. But we often don't take it seriously enough. We often place our own self-interest before the invitation. We often are so consumed with our fear of missing out on all the things that might be available to us. We place that ahead of the invitation to fully participate in the wedding feast. Sadly, it is so often the religious people who miss out on the invitation. We're too busy patting ourselves on the back or being the, thinking that we're the ones who get it, that we miss the true invitation to live in a world of kinship, connection, and justice, to die to ourselves and live to God, as Paul said, to, to work for a world that looks like the person of Jesus, who ate dinner with anyone and everyone and identified with the prisoner, the hungry, and the poor. This parable invites us to recognize the gravity of our response to God's invitation. Now, I don't think that God punishes us for failing to respond, but I do think there are consequences if we don't respond. We're living with those consequences right now with a world of injustice and division and hubris and violence and rage. Consequences of failing to say a wholehearted yes. As individuals and as systems and as, as structures, a wholehearted yes to the invitation of God. And in this parable, God is seems to be saying as the king, it's important for you to participate and say yes to this invitation. Yes, I will offer it freely and over and over and in different ways and different forms. Yes, I will throw seed everywhere. Yes, that is all true. But those who, do, who are dying of thirst must lift the glass to their lips. Those who are starving must open their mouths to eat. Those who despair must dare to lift their eyes to hope. Those who are tired must lay down and rest. Those who are running after what won't satisfy must seek what will fill them. Does God love us no matter what? Yes, yes. Are each of us created good in the image of God? Yes. Does God value our lives and our presence on this world? Absolutely. But Sister Joan Chittister said, says that there is a difference between goodness and holiness. There's a difference between goodness and holiness. We each are essentially good. 
And yet holiness requires our participation, our yes to the invitation. Holiness is our becoming, participating in our becoming of who we are truly meant to be, children of God, guests at the feast who are wholeheartedly there, dressed in compassion, dressed in the clothes God has given us to put on, dressed in those wedding garments. Will we say yes to holiness, to the receiving of God over and over and over and over again? God loves us unconditionally and God longs for our participation in the feast because so much is missed when we miss out on it. Holiness is receiving what God has for us and allowing our lives to be marked by the love of God. Holiness is receiving what God has for us and allowing our lives to be marked by the love of God. Holiness is hearing Jesus when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy hearted, and I will give you rest. We let go of everything else to find that place of rest where we can hear God's call to us, where we can find the strength and the courage to love and be who we need to be in this world. What does that yes look like for you? What are the tiny invitations to holiness in your life? I know I am finding myself in the last six months thinking, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, or like, let's just take a break. I mean, it's the pandemic and, and the political unrest and the smoke and the heat. What does it really matter? Just, just take a break or, or, or take an easy distraction. And, and of course, all of that is okay. I mean, I spent half a day laying on the couch, binging Netflix last week, and that was exactly what I needed. So I'm not not being particular or, or trying to put a harsh or undue invitation out. But, but I think at the same time, there is a gravitas to our lives that would be so easy to miss in this time a gravity of, of saying yes to what God is inviting us to. And, and that may be very different for you than what it is for me, but we know what it's going to look like. It's going to look like greater compassion for others. It's going to look like greater love. It's going to look like forgiveness. It's going to look like expanding the reach of justice in our world. That's what it will look like. And, and that's what we're invited to do. And, and that invitation is deadly serious, says the writer of Matthew in this parable. So I'd like to close by listening to a text of where the Apostle Paul tells us what our wedding clothes may need to be. And so I invite you to to take that in and to, to consider what you might want to put on in this season of life.